This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson, featuring notes and articles that help you follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout Scripture. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Nate Aiken here with the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. There's, on this podcast, we want to have conversations about seeing Christ in all the scriptures, but to do so in a way that is clear so that it can be life changing. You can find more about Christ Centered and Clear at our website, ChristCenteredAndClear.com, where you'll find sermons, articles, many other resources to help uh, in uh, seeing Christ in all the scriptures. Uh, also, we'd love for you to interact with us by rating this podcast and sharing it with friends via social media. And also, feel free to email us if you have topics or texts you want us to cover in future episodes. We would love to hear from you, and we would love to, to uh, tackle those uh, questions and those texts. And so please uh, feel free to email us, ChristCenterAndClear at gmail.com. Today, uh, we're going to have a conversation with my dad, Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. Uh, my dad is a, is a wonderful preacher. He's an author, uh, leader. Uh, an even better dad and so uh, dad thanks for being on the podcast i'm glad to do it night well let's let's start with some questions just to help the listeners get to know you a little bit um so first just tell us uh, where were you born and when did you come to know christ well i was born in atlanta georgia uh, as was your mom and uh, i came to know the lord at the age of 10 having grown up in a home with a christian dad and a christian mom and uh, heard the gospel many times but it was on a sunday night uh, after the service, I can't even remember what the pastor preached on, but when I returned home, I had this huge weight. I'd never felt anything like it before inside my heart. And Mama, uh, who was always very sensitive to things, said, what's going on? And I said, well, I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus loves me and died for me, and I want him to be my Savior. And so we went to see the pastor, and a few weeks later I made, or actually maybe a week later, made my profession of faith and was baptized. I still have the sweet memory of my granddaddy Galloway uh, wrapping me up in a towel after I was baptized and driving me home in his old pickup truck. Who baptized you, the pastor? Yes. Uh, his name was Clyde Allen. When did you begin to sense a call to gospel ministry, sort of kind of vocational full-time ministry? Well, unfortunately, I didn't walk with the Lord as a teenager, but the Lord, you know, doesn't give up on his uh, children. Uh, Hebrews is clear. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. And uh, he got a hold of my life when I was 19 and on a uh, mission trip uh, on a uh, Indian reservation in Sales, Arizona. We were there to do a revival, backyard Bible clubs, vacation Bible school. And in an old-fashioned revival service on Monday night, uh, I sensed uh, as clear as anything I've ever uh, experienced, Nate, uh, the Lord calling me into the ministry. And so uh, at that point, I came back, probably like many people listening to this podcast that are considering ministry, went to my pastor. I said, what do you do? And he said, well, you need to be prepared. And he recommended I go to a Bible college before going to seminary. And since he was my pastor, and that's what he said. I said, yes, sir. So I went to Crystal College in Dallas, Texas, 
then went to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, and then uh, stayed on in that area. In fact, we lived there for about 15 years and did my PhD at the University of Texas at Arlington. How long have you been in ministry now? Well, I'm 63, and since I was 21, so 42 years. That's, that's outstanding. So do you remember your first sermon? Yes, it was actually uh, returning home from that mission trip, and they said, well, God's calling you to the ministry. You might as well get started preaching now. And so they gave me a weird text out of uh, the Old Testament that uh, the men of Issachar knew uh, the times of the seasons or something like that. Uh, and I did my best to wing that. And I, fortunately, uh, that didn't do that again until, uh, oh, I guess it was six months later. That's kind of funny. I was invited to uh, preach at our church where I was living in Dallas. Well, I'd never preached before, didn't know how to do it. But W.A. Crystal had, was preaching through the book of Acts, and he had preached four sermons um, four on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 26 through 40. So I listened to all four of those sermons over and over and over, wrote down what I thought was the best of them, and combined them into one. <laughs> and preached that. <laughs> and preached that. So that was your second sermon. That was my second sermon. They just picked for you the men of Issachar? Yes. Why? Uh, well, he said, well, these were men that knew the times and uh, were wise concerning them. And I'm like, well, okay. So there you go. And I'm like, all right. Well, why, why, not, why couldn't I have preached on John 316? <laughs> I mean, absolutely, yeah. Did, I mean, looking back on it, was that you probably had no idea what a Christ-centered sermon was. So was there any kind of Christ-centeredness to it? I have no memory of what <laughs> I said at all. And I think that's the grace of God. <laughs> that's incredible. So now that you're, you've been in ministry for a while, how long does it typically take you to prepare for a sermon? I still spend uh, somewhere between uh, 8 uh, to 12 hours on every message. And the good thing is what used to take me 25 hours, I can do in about 10 now. So I try to spend 8 to 12 hours uh, on, on each sermon, whether I'm speaking to 15 people on Wednesday night or to 5,000 on a Sunday morning. Mm. What do you take into the pulpit with you? So is it a outline, full manuscript, kind of what do you take up there with you? It varies. Uh, you know, I kind of have a, like an itinerant ministry. And so there's some messages that I've preached many times, uh, usually by request. And, uh, so I will usually just take the Bible with me and maybe the outline. Uh, if it's something brand new, I will have a more full manuscript, uh, to guide me through. I like to use quotes and cite statistics. And uh, so if you're going to do that, unless you have a photographic memory, which I don't have, then you need that in front of you. When you are preparing a sermon, getting ready to preach it, do you practice it at all? Like preach it to yourself, preach it out loud? What, what do you kind of do before you take it into the pulpit? I used to do that. I don't do that so much anymore. Now, I do go over the manuscript multiple times. Once it's finished, uh, I'm going to go back through it again and highlight it, mark certain things that I want to make sure I emphasize. Uh, I'll think through uh, how it will sound, because I always remind our students that when you speak, uh, you're uh, not uh, writing for the eye. In essence, you're writing for the ear. And so you want to make sure it sounds right. And things sound differently in verbal speech than they do when you put something on paper or you're typing it out. 
Yeah, I, even in my own personal preaching, I've gotten so much better at that. Just saying it a few times so that I can see what I'm going to, you know, how it's going to sound is, is really helpful. That's so one of the benefits of preaching multiple times on a Sunday by the last service, you used to have it down pretty well. Yeah. And you know, your you know, your content a lot. It's the better. first group that got <laughs> yeah. practiced oh, yeah. on. Absolutely. You feel more free, I think, too. I agree. The more you go. But let me ask some just kind of personal kind of fun hobby questions, and then we'll dive more deeply into Christ-centered questions. But what, so what are some of your hobbies? Well, I love sports, uh, as all of you, uh, my, your, you, my four sons know. So right now I'm really kind of in a state of depression. It could move to a manic stage if something doesn't happen soon, <laughs> but, uh, I love watching, uh, football in particular, uh, college and professional football. I enjoy basketball, though I tend now to be more interested during the playoffs and, uh, during the tournament. Um, I, I do like baseball. I'll, I'll, uh, I enjoy going to games. I'm not much of watching it on TV anymore, uh, but I do enjoy going to games and uh, just the atmosphere. So I like that. Uh, when my knee's not acting up, I like to walk. Yeah. I enjoy doing that. Uh, I love spending time with your mom, and your mom's a big movie watcher, uh, loves watch TV. So we uh, right now under uh, COVID, uh, we've gone through a bazillion series <laughs> on Netflix, Hulu, and everything else. But I enjoy just being beside her, uh, so I enjoy doing that. Uh, you know, Nate, I didn't read a whole lot when I was in high school, but uh, the Lord, when he called me to the ministry, really gave me a love for reading. I love to spend time in my study. You know, some people see that the work of the study, and it is work, but for me, it's more worship. And uh, so I enjoy preparing messages. I enjoy studying the Bible. And uh, my ideal vacation uh, is, you know, basically staying home for two weeks, studying in the morning and the afternoon, having dinner with your mom, watching a movie or something at night, and going to bed. Yeah, yeah sounds like good, good to day. go. Sounds like a pretty good day. I'm pretty simple. Yeah, absolutely. Favorites. So you said football. Who who are your favorite teams? They, everybody's got to know that. Well, when it comes to college, I'm a bulldog, so I pull for the Georgia Bulldog, not the Mississippi ones. Who would pull for them? Uh, I agree with you on that. <laughs> uh, I uh, love the. Cowboys, and as it's always frustrating with their management, but uh, I do love the Cowboys. I love the Falcons, but the Falcons uh, perennially uh, disappoint. And after their Super Bowl collapse against the Patriots, I'm so deeply wounded psychologically, I may never recover from that. But uh, I do pull for the Falcons, but the Cowboys primarily. Uh, I pull for the Panthers since we now live in North Carolina. Uh, basketball, hmm. You know, we lived in Dallas for 15 years, so I still enjoy the Mavs. I don't even know if Atlanta has a pro team anymore. Yes, I actually do know, but they just don't ever do anything. Um, baseball, I'm a Braves fan, but again, that's painful. Uh, they know so how to win. In general, uh, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. They know how to win division titles, but they don't know how to even get to a World Series anymore. So those are the teams I would pull for. Baseball was your best sport? Yes, I had intended to go to college to play baseball, got injured. And was not able to play in the fall, was invited to come back uh, in the spring, summer. But that's when we went on the uh, mission trip to uh, Arizona. And so I never looked back after that. But I played football, basketball, and baseball in, in high school and enjoyed all three of them. Let me ask one more fun question because I know you like this show. Uh, who's your favorite character on The Office? Oh, goodness. 
I, I like Jim. I like his sarcastic looks when Michael says something weird or Dwight, and he gives you that look like, really? That they really just said that or did that? Uh, but all of them have their own particular personalities that make them entertaining. Whoever put that together uh, had a real gift for putting that cast uh, together. And so they all are funny in their own individual way. Some of them frustrate me more than others. Michael can sometimes drive me absolutely insane. But again, he was the uh, lead actor through uh, many of the years, and uh, he's very gifted and adept at being Michael. Now be a good time to hear from our sponsor. This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson. Biblical theology allows you to ponder the individual stories and themes of Scripture while observing how they all fit together in God's grand biblical narrative. That's why this unique study Bible features three articles in introducing biblical theology and 25 articles unpacking key themes of Scripture. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible contains detailed book introductions, 20,000 verse-by-verse study notes, 28 theologically rich articles by authors such as Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung, hundreds of full-color photos, more than 90 maps, and over 60 charts. All of this allows readers to marvel at the big story while savoring each detail. With a focus on biblical theology and the overarching story of Scripture, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible helps readers follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout the Scriptures. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. All right, so let's talk more preaching questions. Give me just uh, your brief, you say your definition of expository preaching, and then we'll move to kind of Christ-centered preaching. Well, the easiest definition, uh, Nate, would be uh, expository preaching is text-driven preaching. Uh, Sometimes you hear people say context is king. I've changed that. The text is king. Context is queen. And uh, the text determines everything. It determines in preaching, I believe, both the substance and the structure of the message. So you allow the text to determine what the sermon is going to look like in both of those categories. Do you then have a definition for Christ a Christ-centered sermon, expository sermon? Well, it's text-driven preaching that uh, exalts Christ or shows Christ in that text and then uh, compels the listeners uh, to a verdict. In other words, I don't think you can be a Christ-centered preacher without presenting Christ in that text in an authentic kind of a way and then uh, asking for a verdict calling people to a response. Now, that doesn't mean they have to walk an aisle, though I'm not opposed to walk the aisle invitations. In fact, this is another time where I fear we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So we turn away from walk the aisle invitations to the extent we don't give any kind of invitation. Uh, I find that to be ministerial malpractice. You present the gospel, you should invite people to respond in some genuine an authentic way. And so we want to honor the text. We want to exalt Christ in that text. And I believe all of scripture points to him in some genuine way. And then we want to invite people to respond to the gospel proclamation that naturally, and I, I can't find a text in scripture that you cannot genuinely get to the uh, gospel from. And, and there's ways, I mean, just to, to go back to something you said, there are ways to have faithful and even careful call for response in a way that's not manipulative and is not, you know, number seeking. We need to be careful in how we do that, but there are ways to do that. And the apostles always called for a response. And so uh, faithful preaching. I think back to my growing up uh, into my early twenties when everybody gave walk the aisle invitations. And I can only think in all honesty, uh, Nate, 
a couple of times where I felt like the uh, preacher was being manipulative. Most of the time, yeah, they were passionate. Uh, you could tell that they were sincere and wanted to see people respond. But I, I didn't feel manipulated. Only a couple of times in my whole life did I feel like, wow. I, and usually it was on reflection. I could look back on it. I said, you know, he kind of crossed a line there and played on my emotions, I think, a little bit more than he should have. But even then, the men that I knew and got to know later, I really think they genuinely wanted to see people saved. And so they just needed to be a little bit more cautious might be the best word. But, you know, we were dealing with this when I was at Southern Seminary years ago and had a student write a doctoral dissertation on the invitation. And the bottom line was that uh, he concluded is motivation. What is your is your motive to move people from point A to point B so as to be able to tell people what you accomplished? Or is your motive to see people genuinely converted? And I think if the motive is right, then the invitation will give be given in a proper way. And the and the gospel demands a response. So you you give some kind of response see it no matter throughout what. all of the Bible. Right, that's right. So I want to ask a question around kind of biography when it comes to this topic for you, because I you know I, I could ask it like this: When were you introduced to the idea of Christ centered interpretation and preaching? But maybe you you this was probably not a method you were taught in seminary. So how has your preaching changed in this area? And kind of when it comes to Christ centered preaching and interpretation. Well, it wasn't what I was taught. Uh, now, I was taught expository preaching when I was at Crystal College. I was taught the big idea approach when I was at Southwestern Seminary. And reflecting back upon them, neither one of them really taught Christ-centered preaching as we understand it today. In fact, I'm not sure it was even on the radar screen in the uh, late uh, 70s uh, and early 80s. Now, uh, in both places, the idea of preaching without giving an invitation would have never entered their mind. But in the sense of what we talk about today, no, I was not taught that. And in fact, because of my rabid commitment to exposition uh, and honoring the substance and structure of the text, uh, I was very much a devotee of Walt Kaiser. Uh, think of his classic book, Towards an Exegetical Theology. And I often say, I agree with everything Kaiser says. The problem is he doesn't say enough. There's more to preaching than, and there's more to hermeneutics than what Dr. Kaiser does, who, by the way, is someone I hold in the highest regard. We've had him on this campus, and I revere him in so many ways. So it began to develop, actually, when I first came to Southeastern, uh, beginning around the year 2005, 2006. And actually, your twin brother was very influential here because Jonathan began to, in a gracious way, say, have, have you read uh, what uh, Graham Goldsworthy says? Have you read uh, Sidney Gradanus? Have you looked at what Sinclair Ferguson says about preaching? Now, I knew of Brian Chappell's book, but I had not read it. But then I did sit down and read it. And even then, Brian does a certain uh, – he brings a certain emphasis to Christ-centered preaching. Then Keller comes on the scene, and I began to just listen to these guys, and they did not in any way – uh, demean the uh, traditional exegetical expositional. We want to honor the text in its uh, the grammatical historical interpretation of a text. They simply said there's a further question to ask, and that further question is how does this text point or show us Christ? In fact, when I teach preaching, I tell 
our students, there are five questions that every text or every sermon needs to address. Number one, what does the text teach me about God? Number two, what does this text teach me about fallen humanity that requires the grace of God? That's chapel's fallen condition focus. Number three, how does this text show us Christ? Number four, what do I want my people to know? And number five, what do I want my people to do? And so we need to make sure that we ask those first three questions, which are very theological theological in the context of doing good, faithful, uh, historical, grammatical interpretation. I was going to ask, funny, I had in my notes that, you know, there's a spectrum when it comes to this, and the, usually the spectrum is on one side we have Kaiser, and on the other side we have Keller. Yes. Uh, so where would you kind of find yourself on that spectrum? Uh, I lean more toward Keller. I'm not in the middle. Uh, I, I am a, uh advocate of Christ-centered preaching, and so I would be more in that camp. I think Tim sometimes can do some things with a text that I have to kind of, you know, mm, not quite sure that that is a natural Christological implication from that text. But uh, I'll quote my friend James Merritt. I would rather make too much of Jesus than not enough of Jesus. And so, and I don't think Keller uh, crosses the line, at least not very often, into allegory. And I want to be clear, I'm not an advocate of allegory. Uh, I think that's problematic. I'm an advocate more of typology. Now, I've heard some of my friends say, well, one man's allegory is another man's typology. Uh, I think that is a straw man. I think there really are clear-cut differences between the two because when you are doing, I think, faithful Christ-centered preaching, you're not trying to find a one-to-one correspondence with every detail in the text. You're simply looking for larger themes. This is where I think uh, Gradanus has been so helpful. When you get like his books, Preaching Christ Through Genesis or Preaching Christ Through uh, Daniel or other things, he's looking at it. He gives us six or seven ways that a text may point us and show us Christ. And again, what I would say is go back, look at uh, the sermons in Acts, look at the sermon of Hebrews or the sermons in Hebrews. There's some debate there. And look at how they deal with Christ in the Old Testament. And I think you've got a biblical paradigm and pattern uh, that will give us direction how we can authentically do it today. Interesting, you saying about you know uh, Dr. Merritt's quote. I'd rather kind of make too make much too of him, much yeah. of Jesus, than not enough. Well, the way when we talk about it, John and I, it's so funny because it comes back to just how you raised us. It, you know, you would never get mad at us for striking out. You get mad at us if we struck out looking at the third pitch. You're like, take a cut. It's the same thing with this. We'd rather you take a cut and yes. miss it on Jesus than not take a cut at all. Um, so, because this has kind of changed for you, you know, now it sounds like about almost 15 years ago. What has changed in your prep? Then when you're when you're particularly an Old Testament text, but how are you kind of working hard to find the connections and see what's happening as far as the Christ-centered interpretation? Well, it required additional time because I'm asking additional questions that before I wasn't asking. So this, for example, a good a good model if you want to follow Danny Aiken is I've written uh, three commentaries on the Song of Solomon. I wrote the book God on Sex. I wrote the Song of Solomon section in the Holman um, uh, Christian Old Testament uh, uh, commentary. That's not exact title, but it was the Holman uh, commentary. And then I wrote Song of Solomon in uh, the Christ-centered exposition. And you'll see a difference now. I don't think I wrote anything wrong 
in either the Holman Commentary or the God on Sex book, but I don't think I wrote as much as was in there. So if you get the last uh, work that I did on Song of Solomon in the Christ-Centered Exposition, you'll see much of the same expository work. But at the end of each chapter, I ask the question, so how does this text point us to Christ? And what I would argue is an overarching framework. Song of Solomon, I don't accept the kind of growing popular view that there are three main actors in the book as opposed to two, with Solomon actually being the bad guy and the shepherd lover being the good guy. I think Solomon is the shepherd lover. So what you have in this book is a shepherd king in search of a bride whom he brings to himself, and after he has married her, he can describe her repeatedly in the book as his beloved, as his flawless one, as his perfect one. You get to chapter five, where you have the only description in all the Bible of a male's physique, chapter five, 10 through 16. And there are a number of commentators that say, when you read this description of Solomon, it sounds almost apocalyptic. Well, do a comparison of Song of Solomon 5, 10 through 16, with Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 20, and you're like, my goodness, this shepherd king is anticipating the heavenly glorified Christ. Furthermore, you get to the end of the book, and it has a strong uh, eschatological undercurrent uh, that points again to the future perfect union of a bride to her shepherd king. Well, go to Revelation chapter 7, and what do you find there but a great shepherd who is the exalted Christ who is bringing his bride to himself and meeting every need that we will ever have. And so I think you can see, and you've got themes, Nathan, of, of in fact, what I say, Song of Solomon looks very strongly in two directions. It looks back to what it was like before the fall. There's garden imagery everywhere. And it looks forward to Ephesians 5, uh, which, of course, is a picture of the ultimate wedding feast and wedding union between Christ and his church. And so I think you can read Song of Solomon as great help and insight for marriage. And I think it was intended for that. But it was also all along pointing us to something more. You anticipate when will we ever see a shepherd king like this? When will Israel? Initially, the allegory that predominated was allegory between Israel and God. Then it became Christ uh, and uh, the individual believer. Then it became Christ and the church. Well, I see there's a sense of, uh, of truth in all of that. But when did it shift in their way of thinking and I think even then they were thinking there's it's pointing us to something greater than just a man and a woman within marriage, and and it is. It's good. I was going to ask questions around Song of Solomon, so let me just ask a couple there, and then we'll we'll kind of shut down. But how many sermons do you preach through Song of Solomon? If you're if you're just kind of guys that are maybe about to tackle that book, how do you break it down? Uh, I preached uh, around 14, if I remember correctly. There are eight chapters. Some of the chapters, uh, I think, uh, demand more than one message. 
uh, a couple times you actually there's a in my mind not a perfect chapter division so i will overlap uh but i think i preached around 14 or so when i went through it in your commentary is that how it's broken down mm-hmm. based upon your sermons okay so th- if they want to kind of check that out it'd be a helpful as far as how you broke broke down and the they could go to uh my website uh at uh, danielaken.com and all the uh, outlines, all of the manuscripts, and even the audios are there, and they're all free. So they don't have to buy them. I'm happy if they buy the book, but they can go there and see it laid out as well. That's good. So, I mean, you basically gave us, I was going to ask you, how do you see the Christ connection? So, so really, what you would say is kind of the connection would be Ephesians 5 and then even Revelation, this eventual kind of presentation of this bride. And, and, and look at the shepherd thing that runs all throughout Scripture and the uh, – the king, who I think is Solomon, who is portrayed uh, in an idealistic kind of a way in the Song of Songs, is also at the very beginning a shepherd. So he's a shepherd king. Well, the theme of the shepherd king is strong in the Old Testament in anticipation of the Messiah. And then we see this come to fruition in our Lord, who is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, who is the eschatological shepherd in Revelation. Now, now you teach Song of Solomon in, ma- in marriage conferences. Yes. So one of the things we're trying to do with Christ Center and Clear is not just – I mean, sometimes people would say, yeah, cool, you show me the Christ connections, but how, what does this matter for me? But with Song of Solomon, it, it is still very practical as well. I always start, uh, Nate, with the historical grammatical, and then I move to the Christological. I think you make a mistake if you just immediately jump to Christ. I think you need to honor the text in its historical context, raising the question, how did the original audience understand what the author was writing? But is it possible that he wrote more uh, than even he realized? I don't, I don't believe that there are different meanings, but I am an advocate of what's known as census plenary. Uh, I believe there is a more fullness uh, to each text that was intentionally put there by the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of Scripture. And that's one of the amazing and wonderful realities about the Bible with its dual authorship. God could inspire a human author to write that which was absolutely true in that particular context, but he could also inspire them to write something that would transcend that in light of the totality of God's revelation. And I agree with Kevin Van Huser. I think you should read every text in light of the total canon. Uh, or as Paul Harvey, who's now in heaven, but used to be a very famous newscaster, you need to read every text in light of the rest of the story. That's good. Just two more questions. So when when it comes to Song of Solomon, obviously when we talk about anything, when it comes to a husband loving his wife, wife loving husband, we can look at Ephesians 5, the sacrificial love of Christ for his bride. How do you then work that out as far as practically through the Song of Solomon? You don't have to give all of it, but just maybe a couple of examples. Well, um, for example, you take uh, their wedding night, which is described in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 1, and you learn, first of all, before uh, the husband moves uh, toward his bride to consummate their uh, marriage and their wedding night, he spends 16 verses praising her. I mean, in minute, intimate detail. Uh And, of course, I agree with Gary Chapman that one of the love languages that many of us have is words. And so he doesn't immediately go for it. He takes a lot of time in preparing for that moment. 
by praising her and praising her not in general, but praising her specifically. At the same time, she, knowing that men are creatures of sight, is very carefully, uh, I think even methodically uh, planning, uh, unveils herself uh, to the point that by the end, she is naked before her husband. And then the marriage is consummated at the end of chapter uh, four and at the beginning of chapter five. So you get wonderful application in terms of how a man should praise his wife, should be specific in that praise, should speak to those things that he knows will bless her and encourage her. You find from her a woman sensitive to the way God put a man together. And uh, of course, then what's so funny is immediately after that is there what I playfully call bad night in the bedroom, which is five, two through eight. And uh, the honeymoon is over. He has to get back to the life of a king. And lo and behold, he comes home late one night. And evidently, she had planned for a really nice evening. He didn't get there. She locks him out of the bedroom, Uh which I think would indicate to any man that his wife is not happy. And uh, he tries to woo her, uh, even gets very, uh, goes back to what worked before. But what you learn in marriage is what worked before doesn't always work again. Uh, You have to say the right thing in the right way at the right time. Uh, finally, being the typical male, his feelings get hurt. He walks away. But then God, uh, though not mentioned directly, I think brings her under conviction. She goes looking for him, and you have wonderful reconciliation that takes place. And you're thinking, my goodness, that's exactly how marriage works. And so we need to recognize that even in an ideal presentation of marriage, there's problems that have to be dealt with. Well, guess what? We live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And even if we love our mate passionately, there are going to be bumps in the road. That's normal. The key is, what do you do when the bumps of the road come? And in their case, they forgive, they reconcile, and they enjoy one another, and they move ahead. One last is practical question. Just for the, a Christian, not a pastor, not a leader, but a Christian that's trying to read the Bible and see Christ when they read the Old Testament so that it can change their lives, we'll just give some practical tips and helps on how you, you think they could do that. Well, going back to the way uh, many scholars have done it that did not even bind to Christ-centered exposition, look for patterns, look for types, uh, especially in individual, but also in institutions, uh, in acts. But then, you know, Sinclair Ferguson, I wish he'd been a little bit more specific, but he says, if you just become familiar with the Bible by reading it over and over and over all of a sudden, you'll begin to have a feeling. I feel like I've been here before. And uh, yes, you have, because in light of the cross, this story takes on a new and more significant meaning. So one example, you won't teach the story of David and Goliath as a moral uh, on how you can slay the giants in your life. Because first of all, you can't slay the giants in your life. Even David in that story acknowledges that it's the Lord God whose strength and power I come in that's going to basically cut your the head Lord off. The Lord of hosts is with us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you realize, no, the, we're, we're actually the Israelites up on the hillside shaking in our boots and having our knees knocked because we know we can't take on the giant. So what does God do? He raises up a giant killer on our behalf. Well, that sure sounds a whole lot like the gospel. And then the next thing you know, going back to Genesis 3.15, where we're promised that the Savior that will come will crush the head of the evil one. Well, David 
puts a rock in his head, cuts his head off. Now, is that the final fulfillment? No. But if you go through the Old Testament, you'll discover there are a number of times where heads get crushed under the feet of a messianic kind of figure. There, there are repeated times where a great shepherd does something that you're like, hmm, this feels like I've been here before. Well, you, you, you're going to get there, but because you know the rest of the story, you have been here. He takes his own weapon, takes the, the enemy's own weapon and kills him with it. It's amazing. Jonathan says it's like reading you know, a novel, cutting to the back, reading the end of it, then going back and reading. And this time you see how these clues that are dropped all along the way take on a much greater significance. And again, I think that's how God intends for us to read his word today. Absolutely. Well, Dad, thanks for taking time to be on. I uh, really appreciate your time. My honor, Nate. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Again, we'd love to hear from you. Please interact and uh, look forward to future episodes. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources. 